When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. No particular variety is famous, but one particular year is. All varieties gave off their best when Lucius Opimius was consul, the very same year in which the tribune Gracchus stirred up the people to rebellion and he was assassinated. In that year, Rome's 633rd, the weather was ideally sunny. Ripe, as people say. These Opimian wines have lasted about 200 years already, though by now they have reduced to something resembling rough honey, evidently the natural state of wine in its old age. They are no longer drinkable by themselves, not even when diluted with water. Their formidable maturity has at length turned to bitterness. They are medicines now, used in tiny doses to improve other wines. Hello! Welcome back to the Delicious Legacy Podcast for part 3 of the history of wine. I'm Thomas Dinas and in this episode we will explore the origins of ancient Rome's wine and wine industry. Part 1 and 2 are out on Spotify, YouTube, Acast and Apple Podcasts for everyone to listen. But if you want to receive the content early and ad-free, subscribe to my Patreon page. Just Google Patreon and the Delicious Legacy Podcast and from £3 a month you get access to a wealth of exclusive archaeogastronomical content. If you deconstruct Greece, you will see in the end an olive tree, a grapevine and a board remain. That is with as much you can reconstruct her. That's the wise words of a noble winning Greek poet, Odysseus Elitis. You see, for Elitis, but also for most of the Greeks, the definition of the Greek spirit, the essence of Greekness, includes a grapevine and the wine. In troubled times, such as the ones we live today, and we have been living for the past decade at least, our identity, what we are and how we define ourselves, is often brought into question. So we are almost obliged to look back to history and find a way to help shore it up. And this is true for things such as national foods, 
and drinks too. You see, we Greeks consider the wine a quintessentially Greek drink, together with ouzo and um, tsipuro, the other alcoholic beverage made from uh, grapes. And it's a very similar one to grappa. But this approach creates some problems at least, and um, maybe perhaps more than it solves sometimes. Because uh, wine is also considered part of the Italians and the French and many other countries along the Mediterranean uh, part of their identity. In reality, everything is more intertwined, more complex, and connections and relationships between different nations and people go back millennia. This is true for the history of wine too, and how the knowledge of winemaking was transmitted to ancient Romans. And this is the crux. Though wild grape vines have grown on the Italian peninsula since prehistory, historians are unable to determine precisely when domestic viticulture and winemaking first occurred. Of course, it would be possible that some early Bronze Age uh, Greek traders or traders from the mainland Greece had some influences in southern Italy, but the earliest recorded evidence of Greek influence dates to 800 BCE. Viticulture was widely entrenched also in the Etruscan civilization, which was centered around the modern winemaking region of uh, Tuscany. So perhaps the Romans had um, a double pole of influences, some from the south and uh, Italy from Greeks, and then some from uh, the north and central north from the Etruscans. And that makes a lot of sense, actually, at least to my mind. So we know the Greeks, the ancient Greeks, saw wine as a staple of domestic life and a viable trade commodity. Their colonies were encouraged to plant vineyards for local use and trade with the Greek city-states. Southern Italy's abundance of indigenous vines provided an ideal opportunity for wine production, giving rise to the Greek name for the region, Inotria, or Land of Vines. The southern Greek colonies probably also brought their own wine-pressing methods with them and influenced Italian production methods. If we jump ahead a little bit and go to the Republican era in Roman times, the culture of Roman winemaking was influenced by the viticultural skills and techniques of Rome's allies and of the regions conquered by Rome's expansion. Things came to head with the Greek settlements of southern Italy when they were brought under Roman control roughly from 270 BC. The Etruscans, who had already established trade routes to Gaul, were completely conquered by the 1st century BC. Roughly around the same time, the Punic Wars with Carthage had a particularly marked effect on Roman viticulture. In addition to broadening the cultural horizons of the Roman citizenry, Carthaginians also introduced them to advanced viticultural techniques described in the work of Mago. Although Rome ransacked and burnt the libraries of Carthage, the 26 volumes of Mago's agricultural treatise survived intact. They were subsequently translated into Latin and Greek in 146 BCE. 
Although his work didn't survive to the modern era, it has been extensively quoted in the influential writings of Romans Pliny, Columella, Varro and Gargilius Martialis. For most of Rome's winemaking history, Greek wine was the most highly prized, with domestic Roman wine commanding lower prices. The 2nd century BC saw the dawn of the golden age of Roman winemaking and the development of uh, Grand Cru vineyards, a type of early first growth in Rome. The famous vintage of 121 BC became known as the Opimium Vintage, named for the consul Lucius Opimius. Remarkable for its abundant harvest and the unusually high quality of wine produced, some of the vintage's best examples were being adjoined over a century later. And Roman vineyards and viticulture had spread across the empire later on and as far north as Northamptonshire in England, in Wollaston in the Nin Valley, believe it or not. In ancient Rome, immediately after the grapes were harvested, they were stomped on, often by foot. The juice was placed in large terracotta pots, big enough to hold a man, lined with beeswax and buried to the neck in the ground. Often the pots were left open during fermentation, before being sealed with clay or resin. When the Greeks came to Sicily, the Italian mainland and southern France, they introduced domesticated vines and winemaking. The Roman historian Justin ranked viticulture along with urban life and constitutional government as one of the benefits of civilization that the Greek settlers of Massalia conferred on the indigenous inhabitants of the area. It is also possible that the Greeks introduced viticulture to Spain and Portugal roughly in the 7th century BC. Although it is very possible and many others suggested that Phoenicians brought viticulture in Spain. The Greeks called southern Italy Inotria, or the land of trained vines. So important was wine in the region that in one southern Italian site, dating back to the 4th and 3rd century BC, grapevine remains make up a full 30% of vegetation recovered by archaeologists. Etruscans had a tradition already of viniculture, as we've seen, and wine production, and exporting it across the Alps as far as Burgundy. It was in the Roman period in the last centuries BC and the first few hundred years of the Christian era that viticulture and winemaking first attracted a coherent body of writing, thanks to Romans, of course. Columella set out the principles of viticulture with an astonishing precision. For the most part, wine was fermented in sealed amphoras. Small holes permitted carbon dioxide to escape during fermentation. But after the process was complete, they were blocked up. The wine was not always raked or filtered, and when it was not, it was siphoned or run through a sieve as it was poured out to be consumed. Cato recommended drying grapes in the sun for two or three days, while Virgil advised a different means to the same end of increasing sugar content, leaving grapes on the vine until they were exposed to frost. The products of Virgil's method were the forerunners of modern-day late-harvest wines. Cato also said that during the 30 days of fermentation, the insides of wine jars should be regularly scraped with brooms made of elm twigs 
to stop the dregs sticking to the sides. This process was the equivalent of batonnage and other methods of ensuring that the lees stay in contact with the mast during fermentation. Depending on the grapes used, it should have ensured a darker and more tannic wine. The jars were then sealed until spring, when the wine was raked off into clean amphoras for aging. A sweet raisin wine called Passum, similar to Passito wine made today in Italy, was a popular tipple in the late Roman Empire. Two types of grapes, Apiana and Psythia, were used to make Passum. Their most likely equivalent today being the Muscat grape of Alexandria, which genetic testing has traced back to antiquity, according to archaeologists. The grapes would have been left on the vine beyond ripening, then picked and dried in the sun until becoming almost raisins, their weight halved and the sugar highly concentrated. And uh, we have great evidence this type of wine was particularly popular in the southern region of Turkey and that it was shipped to Israel, Syria and Palestine to be used in Jewish rituals like Passover. Archaeologists also believe it was popular for church ritual and the early Eucharistic ceremonies in the early Roman Christian church. Because it was really sweet, with high alcohol content, it must have created a tipsy, celebratory kind of spiritual atmosphere when it was drunk in these ceremonies. Researchers also believe passum was popular among women because it was used in cooking and commonly found in kitchens. Through Roman history, there were phases of prohibition where ancient Rome's elite forbade women from drinking alcohol. They thought it made women too rambunctious. So we get descriptions about women sneaking a bit of passum when they are in the kitchen. We also know that men were well aware of this habit and we have evidence of an act called Ius Osculi, where male relatives, even cousins or relatives of the husband, could kiss the female to taste the alcohol on her breath. We think it's from one of these uh, Carthaginian books on agriculture that Columella took his recipe for passive wine. Soon, Romans would begin to make military conquests in the East. Greek slaves, including Greek cooks, would flood the cities. Greek comedies, adapted into Latin, would sweep the Roman stage. And Greek ways of life and love would come to seem more natural than homegrown customs. Cato stands at the very beginning of this exciting development. Even in Cato's time, Greek wine was in fashion in Roman Italy. And that's the reason we guess that gives all these uh, complex recipes and complicated recipes for adding seawater to the must to imitate the wine of uh, the island, of course. At the same time, we can see from the firm and practical instructions for the vintage and the wine trade elsewhere in Cato's uh, handbook that the wine of Italy was already big business. 200 years later, the Tyrus Pliny tried to write the history of Italian vintages. In early times, he decided, no particular variety is famous, but one particular year is. All varieties gave off their best when Lucius Opimius was consul, the very same year in which the tribune Gracchus 
stirred up the people to rebellion and was assassinated. In that year, Rome's 633rd, the weather was ideally sunny, ripe, as the people say. These opimian wines have lasted about 200 years already, though by now they have reduced to something resembling rough honey, evidently the natural state of wine in its old age. They are no longer drinkable by themselves, not even when diluted with water. Their formidable maturity has at length turned to bitterness. They are medicines now, used in tiny doses to improve other wines. This marvelous year for Italian wines was, as we've seen, 121 BCE. Ancient wines did not usually last that long, and when we're talking long, we're talking about 200 years. As Pliny remarked in the later section of his encyclopedia, no investment gains faster than wine up to its 20th year, or loses faster after that, unless its price rises. This may sound like self-contradiction, but the meaning is clear. Wine that lasted longer than 20 years was a rarity. Egnosos wine, out of Minoan Crete, sends you this resin wine. It is the poor man's usual Muslim, wrote the poet Marshall. The Romans used many different types of sweetener in their wines, and sauces in general. And one of the finest was passum. Uh, raisin wine, as we've seen, was made in many places and in Crete throughout the ancient and medieval times and is still produced uh, in Italy and France and definitely is not a poor man's drink. I think uh, what we have from Marcel here is he's displaying a false modesty. Pliny describes how the Cretans made their famous raisin wine. Some make passum from any sweet, early ripening white grape, drying the bunches in the sun until little over half their weight remains. Then they gently express the must. The more painstaking makers dry the grapes in the same way and then pick the individual grapes and soak them without the stalks in fine wine until they swell and then press them. This style is considered better than any other. Pliny the Elder wrote extensively about the first growths of Rome, most notably Falernian, Alban and Caecuban wines. Other first growth vineyards included Raeticum and Hadrianum from uh, the Adriatic Sea, along in Po as well, in what are now the modern-day regions of Lombardy and Venice, respectively. Praetusium, along the Adriatic coast, near the border of uh, the Emilia-Romana, Marseille and Lucense in modern Tuscany. Around Rome itself, there were estates of Alban, Sabinum, Tiburtinum, Cetinum and Signinum. Southward to Naples were the estates of Caecuban, Falernian, Caolinum, Trebellicanum, Massicum, Cauranium and Surrentinum. In Sicily was the first growth state of Mamertimum. As we know, Pliny the Elder, living near Pompey in 77 CE, wrote of the vine-growing hills and noble wines of Campania, and the poet Martial described vats dripping with grapes, and the ridges of it 
Bakus love more than the hills of Nysa. Over 150 farms have been discovered in the Vesuvian region and many engaged in viticulture. Some of the most famous ancient wines came from this region, including the honey-sweet and expensive Falernian wine. Falernian was said to ignite when a flame was applied. Highly unlikely, but uh, that suggests an alcohol content of, of at least 40%, significantly higher than the 11% you would expect to buy from a bottled uh, white wine today. While the Falernian was believed to be white, most ancient wines were red due to the less laborious production process. A wide variety of wines could be found on the Roman wine market, some of them flavoured with seawater, some with resin, with spices and herbs like lavender and thyme, or even fermented in a smoked fill room to impart flavour. As we are in uh, the era of Pliny the Elder and uh, we talked about Pompeii, opposite Pompeii's amphitheatre is the Foro Boario, misnamed from archaeologists because originally they thought the site was a cattle market, excavations in the 60s, that's 1960s, revealed it was once actually an extensive vineyard. Over 2,000 vines were found, with almost the exact spacing between each vine as recommended by the ancient agricultural writers such as Pliny and Columella. Each vine was attached to a stake and 58 fruit trees were also planted in the vineyard. Local workers at the time of the excavation even commented that the four depressions found around the root cavities were identical to the holes holding water in their own vineyards. At the back of the vineyard was found a small two-room structure housing a liver wine press and ten dolia, which uh, are large ceramic fermentation jars buried into the ground to keep temperatures consistently cool. That's something that uh, reminds me hopefully you, uh, the bit on the first part of the history of wine, when we talked about modern Georgian wine, the kvevris, that they buried in the ground for the fermentation to happen. Back to ancient Rome, and to our four Boario vineyard, there were also numerous triclinia for eating and drinking scattered among the vineyard, suggesting the owner did a thriving business opposite the amphitheatre, with gladiatorial patrons coming to relax, eat and drink before and after the spectacles. Today's episode is brought to you with the welcome support of Malbin Greek, UK's leading Greek delicatessen supplier and distributor of premium Greek produce, be it wine, herbs, cheeses or olive oil, from all over the wild corners of the country and working directly with family and artisan producers. Why not? or wine not, try the Ktima Vuvukeli Limnio, a red wine from Avdira, North Greece, the homeland of Democritus. Limnio is a truly ancient and very much praised red wine since antiquity and from no other than Aristotle himself. Deep red, framboise color with red forest fruits in the aroma along with black pepper, cardamom and curry notes spicy texture and long aftertaste. Or if you prefer a white wine, then the special Domaine Sigala's Barrel Sandorini PDO Assyrtico is for you. A barrel fermented Assyrtico which demonstrates the aging qualities of the variety, deep lemon color and a complex nose with citrus fruits and wood notes, round and smooth in the mouth with the acidity being the backbone that allows it to age. 
the vines are classified as old vines and are over 50 years in age. The rejuvenation of the vineyards employs the same technique from antiquity to the present day. This is truly a unique wine that deserves to be more well known. Whatever your needs, Malbian Greek has you covered. You can shop online and have the divine and delicious goods delivered to your doorstep across the UK or you can visit the shop at Art17 Apollo Business Park, Lucy Way, SC16, 4ET, Bermondsey, London. Malby and Greek, the one-stop shop for your Greek fix. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too. Like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. At this high point in the empire's history of wine, it was estimated that Rome was consuming over 100 million liters of wine annually, about a bottle of wine each day for every citizen. And if that's not a good empire, I don't know what it is. The origins of uh, the Falernian wine are the stuff of legend. The myth and the story goes that an old Roman farmer eked a humble existence from the soil of Mount Masico about 30 miles north of Naples, when, one day, he was visited by Bacchus in disguise. Falernus prepared him a simple meal, and in gratitude for the hospitality, the god of wine caused the cups of the table to fill. When a hangover Falernus awoke the next day, Bacchus was gone, and the whole mountain was blanketed with healthy vines. Probably a varietal wine made from a grape the Romans called Aminea Gemina, Falernian was grown in three vineyards on the slopes of Mount Masico. Today, the area encompasses the Falerno del Masico, DOC, where the primary grapes grown are Falangina, Aglianico, and Piedirosso. Numerous domains held stakes in the three vineyards, but the one midway up to the Masican slope was considered to have the best terroir, and it was, at least for a time, owned by one man named Faustus. 
If the partitioning of the vineyards mirrored the Burgundian system, the hype surrounding Falernian was all Bordeaux. Falernian from 121 BC, as we've seen, the vintage of the lifetime, was celebrated for decades. Multiple ancient sources mention having the chance to taste the wine 200 years after its vintage date. And as we've seen, writing in the first century, Pliny the Elder acknowledges that the wine was a bit past its peak by then. Caius Trimalchio, the newly money buffoon from Petronius' comedy Satyricon, acts the big shot when he serves this vintage, by this time 180-year-old vinegar, at a dinner party. What was this wine like? Author, philosopher and polymath Pliny identified three types of Falernian, the rough, the sweet and the thin. Falernian may have been either white or red, or both. We simply don't know. Some people believe Aminea could either be today's Greco di Tufo, a white, or an Aglianico, a red. But so far, no one has extracted ancient grape DNA to conclusively identify it. As in ancient Greece, so did the ancient Romans, especially the aristocracy and the higher classes of society, loved their wine-drinking parties, or symposiums, which were actually called conviviums. And yes, the Romans took it to an extreme degree. So, let's check some details of the wine gatherings in ancient Rome then. Similar to the ancient Greek cities, the Roman houses had a special dining room called triclinium. Three couches, each large enough for three diners, were arranged in a U-shape surrounding a central table. A house with a big enough garden might well have a garden dining area too, shaded by vines and creepers with three stone couches sloping gently upwards to the middle to be made comfortable with cushions and pillows. The open side of the square was for the waiters to come and go. Roman women and children had never dined separately from the menfolk, as in Greek families. In the old days, it was said, they sat demurely at the foot of their husband's or father's couch. By the time of the empire, they had become used to reclining. Servants took off guests' sandals as they reclined and brought water to wash their hands. A sequence of dishes began with the gustatio, appetizers or odevres, followed by a sweet aperitif. These appetizers might be more varied and more costly than the main course, though not so bulky. We know of a religious dinner attended by Julius Caesar at which 16 hors awaited the priestly celebrants. They ranged from sea urchin and clams to venison and wild boar. The main courses were accompanied by bread and wine. Servants must have been forever coming and going, bringing new courses, clearing away, supplying more perfumed water for finger rinsing. For diners ate with their hands, with the occasional help of a knife. Music and dance performed by slaves, might well accompany the drinking, which tended to continue long after the meal itself was uh, over. A napkin which lay in front of the diners as they reclined might serve as a knapsack to take home the little gifts of food or wine with uh, which a host would uh, regale his friends as they departed. Greek wine was so prized that one would serve just one cup each at a dinner. As a boy, Varro tells us, 
Lucullus never attended a banquet at his father's house at which more than one single cup of Greek wine was served. Well, on his own return from service in Asia Minor, Lucullus distributed more than 100,000 jars of Greek wine as gifts. Caesar, at his triumphal dinner as a dictator, provided an amphora of Falernian and a small jar of Chian to each table. But at the feast of his third consulship, it was Falernian, Chian, Lesbian and Mamertine. That was the first time, apparently, that four kinds of wine were served. We should note that wine referred to a number of products in ancient Greece and Rome. It meant not only fermented grape juice, but any number of beverages having wine as their base. Cato provided several recipes for uh, Greek, koan, that is from Kos, as we've seen earlier, and other wines, including this one, which he described as suitable for the hands to drink through the winter. Pour into a jar 10 quadrantals of must, 2 quadrantals of sharp vinegar, 2 quadrantals of boiled must, 50 quadrantals of fresh water. Stir with a stick thrice a day for 5 consecutive days. Then add 64 sextari of old seawater, cover the jar and seal 10 days later. This wine will last you until the summer solstice. Whatever is left over will be a very sharp and excellent vinegar. Other recipes involved various additives and processes. In addition to grape products, such as boiled must and old wine, others such as salt, flour, pitch, marble dust, herbs and spices were all added in varying quantities and combinations to provide taste and aroma. In southern Gaul, herbs like thyme and lavender were grown among the vines in the expectation that they would communicate their aromas and flavors to the fruit. In other cases, the herbs and spices were steeped into the wine just prior to it being consumed. Cato and others recommended heating must in copper or lead boilers. The latter was particularly valued because it added sweetness to wine, and even though Vitruvius warned about the harmful effects of lead, it was used in vessels and in glazing for many, many years afterwards, before any serious attempts were made to ban its use in winemaking. It is clear that in the ancient world, wine was the product of a vast range of decisions that involved greater or lesser degrees of human manipulation of the fundamental processes of uh, vinifying the juice of the vine. It is important to remember that alcoholic drinks were part of the everyday life and diet of the ancient world, as they have remained in many parts of Europe ever since. Fermented grains, in the form of beer, contributed valuable calories and nutrients, and wine also provided calories and a range of other beneficial properties. But although wine was a useful part of the daily diet, it was not merely an alternative to beer. What made wine more than just another kind of fermented beverage were the cultural properties that were rapidly attributed to it. Wine became integrated into a series of religious and cultural practices and beliefs. As wine spread throughout the ancient world, greater proportions of the population consumed it on a regular basis. 
Cato proposed that even slaves in change should have about 10 amphoras of wine a year each, which is about 5 liters a week. Wine was provided for slaves not for their enjoyment, however, but because it was believed to give them strength. The wine ration of a sick slave, one who would not work and who did not need strength, was reduced by half. Despite wine being very commercially successful in Greece and consumed broadly, it was even more widely consumed in Rome. I think there's more than 200 bars that have been excavated in Pompeii alone, and it was one of the major wine shipping ports in Italy. In the higher social levels, the Romans developed, um, as we've seen, their own version of uh, the Greek symposium, the Convivium, an occasion for fellowship in which wine drinking was central. Food was consumed with the wine, and women sometimes participated as drinkers. Even so, the presence of women was much debated issue and denounced by some writers who argued that uh, married women who drank wine lost their sense of discretion and were more likely to commit adultery. But regardless of that, around the 2nd century BC, the Roman prohibition on women drinking, especially women drinking wine, seemed to have fallen into disuse. And there is a general notion that wine drinking was linked more to a general shift in diet, basically. So women had been banned from any occasion and association with wine, including the pouring of libations for religious purposes. And various laws had allowed women that had been caught drinking wine to be put to death or divorced. But such a divorce on this ground was last granted in 194 BCE. Despite the widespread expansion of wine drinking to all classes of Roman society, however, it is important to recognize that the wine was not always what it appeared to be. The wine that Cato provided for his slaves, for example, was a mixture a mixture of uh, which must constitute only to about a fifth. Moreover, free laborers in Roman society were unlikely to have been able to afford wine as a normal part of their diet. Instead, there were several wine-based beverages available. One of these was Posca, which was a mixture of water and sour wine. And a careful distinction was made between sour wine and vinegar. For although both were wine that have been attacked by bacteria, sour wine was, has not reached the final stage of becoming vinegar and retained some of its taste qualities of wine. It was less sharp and acidic than vinegar, but it was far lower in alcohol than wine and therefore lacked the ability to intoxicate. This, as well as the cost, was an important consideration underlying the supply of Posca, rather than wine, to soldiers in the Roman armies. Soldiers did receive wine when they were sick or wounded, but it was provided as a medicine, not a beverage. Soldiers were also able to purchase wine, and it's reported that when Metellus arrived in Africa in 109 BCE, he found an army that had pillaged the locality so as to get slaves and livestock to exchange for wine. In 38 BCE, Herod provided wine, as well as oil, grain and cattle, to Roman soldiers besieging Jerusalem after they threatened to mutiny because of the lack of supplies. It had become a military practice to provide wine and other alcoholic beverages to armies because they were safer than water supplies. 
This was especially true at sieges, when drinking water could easily be contaminated by dead and decaying bodies and by human and animal waste. The other beverage that was commonly consumed in Rome was Lora, made from soaking in water the solid residue that remained after all the juice has been squeezed from grapes to make wine. Lora was commonly provided to slaves in the period after harvest. Cato reported supplying to his slaves for three months after the grapes have been picked, and Varro gave it to his agricultural workers during winter. In both cases, however, wine was provided for most months of the year. We can see from this um, type of um, wine drinks, or grape-based drinks like Laura and Posca, that this was widely distributed across Roman Europe, and it was consumed by many, many people. Yet, the precise taste of any ancient wine, especially good wines, even though we have the description of these bad wines or cheap substitutes, so the precise taste of any of these ancient wines is lost to us. Having had all the descriptions of uh, the vinification process, it's quite interesting to try to understand ancient wine. And probably the only clear thing is that ancient wine was... Um, would certainly taste quite different from uh, the wines familiar to us today. It is very difficult to reconstruct tastes from the descriptions given in uh, historical sources. Words are often inadequate as a means of conveying sensations among contemporaries, and they are even less successful in um, communicating them across millennia. For most part, Greeks and Romans who commented on specific wines tended to locate them on two spectrums of sweetness and strength. So wines were more or less sweet and more or less strong, and on the whole classical connoisseurs liked strong, sweet vintages. We can assume that the point of reference for sweetness was honey, and indeed some wines were described as honey-sweet. Other than sweetness and strength, commentators noted with pleasure or otherwise the flavors imparted by additives, such as herbs and salt water and other substances the wine was exposed to, including resin and pitch. So overall, the vocabulary of ancient wine tasting was very limited. Many of the aromas that appear in uh, the vocabulary of uh, modern wine tasters and the modern aroma uh, spectrums uh, were simply unknown to the connoisseurs of the ancient world. Pliny the Elder provided uh, Romans with a veritable catalogue of wines from various parts of the empire in his natural history. His list included 91 varieties of wine, 50 kinds of quality wine, and 38 varieties of foreign wines, as well as a range of other salted, sweet, and artificial wines. Pliny's list is notable for its comments on particular varietals, a shift from the usual emphasis on provenance. He preferred the varieties of the Armenian wine, as we've seen, followed by Nomentian and Apiana, all of which he described as being indigenous to Italy. But Pliny also ranked wines by the region of production, both in Italy and elsewhere. The widespread consumption of wine in Rome speaks of a positive attitude towards wine rather than a merely tolerant one. Moderate quantities of wine mixed with water, of course, were widely viewed by the Roman social and medical commentators as beneficial. There were, of course, warnings as to the personal and social consequences of overindulgence, and there was particular opposition to wine drinking by women, as we've seen earlier. Romans were warned 
that wine could lead to many ailments and problems, and even death. Lucretius, for one, argued that wine's fury disturbed the soul, weakened the body, and provoked quarrels, while Seneca wrote that wine revealed and magnified defects in the character of the drinker. Pliny the Elder, while praising quality wines, warned that many of the truths spoken under the influence of wine were better unspoken. For evidence that excessive drinking was frowned upon in Rome, we need only to look at the way that allegations of it were frequently used to discredit political opponents. Cicero, in particular, was fond of labelling his rival drunkards. He alleged that Mark Antony, his main enemy, led a dissolute life at home and started drinking early each morning. To illustrate the general point, Cicero constantly reminded people of the occasion when, supposedly as a result of a drinking to excess, Mark Antony had vomited in the Senate. What gave allegations of riotous drunkenness resonance in Rome was that such behaviour was associated with uncivilized peoples, such as the Gauls, and specifically those living beyond the Mediterranean world. Some of those people, called barbarians by the Romans, for the Romans, as for the Greeks, wine and the social forms of its consumption were criteria of morality and civilization. Besides being a marker of culture, wine was also attributed therapeutic and health-giving properties. The modern debates on the role of wine in promoting health and causing disease began in the ancient world. On the one hand, wine was widely described as part of a healthy lifestyle, a substance that promoted physical and emotional well-being. More cynically, perhaps, wine was portrayed as staving off unhappiness by acting as a more or less effective anesthetic against the troubles the world inflicted on people. Using wine to cope with depression and grief is not a strategy that would attract a lot of support from modern doctors and therapists, but Euripides has a character expressed the view that Dionysus has done immense good by inventing liquid wine as his gift to man. Throughout the ancient world, wine alone or in conjunction with other substances was believed to have curative properties, particularly for gastric and urological problems. Cato wrote that flowers of certain plants, such as juniper and myrtle, soaked in wine were effective against many ailments. He set out recipes for specific wines to treat a number of such ailments. Thank you for listening. This was part 3 of History of Wine, and I hope you've enjoyed it. Next time, I have a special guest joining me to continue our traveling through the dark seas of wine and through history. This has been an episode of the Delicious Legacy podcast with me, Thomas Dinas. If you need more ancient recipes and unknown herbs and spices from the past, do subscribe wherever you get your podcast from, and please like, rate, and review the podcast. This actually helps out a lot as others can find out our little archaeogastronomical adventures. Anyway, I better let you go so you can drink a glass of Alianico or Greco di Tufo wine and enjoy the rest of your evening, or the rest of your day for that matter. Remember to join our Patreon for tons of exclusive ancient recipes.
Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.